First Peter chapter one. We'll look at verses three through five. It says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading." kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, as we start out this morning, I think it's a very appropriate passage to be in as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that's really what He's doing at this, at this point in this passage. He is celebrating God. Why is He praising God? Well, it brings us right into our Easter celebration because He's celebrating God for what He's done in His life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, He puts it in an interesting way. In fact, there's only four places in the New Testament that it is phrased this way. Twice in this book, First Peter, once in chapter 1, and then a little bit later in the same chapter, and twice in a conversation Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. And the phrase that he uses is the word born again. As we look at this idea of being born again, uh, I would submit that this is what he's praising God for. He's praising God for God's saving work in his life. That God had given Peter new life. That God had given Peter a spiritual life of victory over sin, a victory over death in his life. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate the wrong piece of fruit, we got kicked out of the garden and we've been out of there ever since. Well, that being separated from God at that point is referred to in the Bible as a spiritual death. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that is exactly why we need Christ, because Christ came to give us life and to give us eternal life. And so, when we come into this world dead in our trespasses and sins, we need spiritual life. We need life. And that is exactly why Peter refers to it here as being born again. Well, what does it, what does it mean to be born again? Nicodemus had that question. Nicodemus was a religious teacher, a religious leader in Israel. And he came to Jesus one time at night and he says to Jesus, Good Master, we know that you've got to be from God because nobody can do the works you're doing except God be with him. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said something amazing in Nicodemus' ears. Jesus said, Unless you be born again you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus was completely taken back by that. He, he, he didn't know what he meant. He wasn't sure what he was talking about. And so he asked him about it. He says, wait, wait a minute, what are you saying? And so he, he asked Jesus, he says, can a, can a man, can a grown man enter a second time back into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus says, no, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So he's telling Nicodemus, you have physical life, but you don't have spiritual life. You're still separated from God. You need that spiritual life to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, Nicodemus is still confused, as would I be, and and probably you too, about what it means. So Jesus goes on to explain. And he, he refers back to the book of Numbers in a time in Israel's life when Israel had sinned against God and there were poisoned poisonous snakes in the camp and poisonous snakes were biting people and people were getting sick and they were dying. And Jesus looks back at that time and He uses that to help explain to Nicodemus what it means to be born again. You know what? It's good to clarify it in our society too. If you look down through our society, the term born again has been used for countless different things. Somebody getting a, a renewed vigor on an athletic field, you find the term born again be thrown around. Or a new lease on life. Or a new perspective. Or, well, what exactly did Jesus mean by it? Because that's the one that keeps us in or out of the kingdom of heaven. 
Well, as we look at it, he explains to Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 14, says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. What is that talking about? Well, as we look back into the book of Numbers, when the poisonous snakes were in the camp and people were being bitten, at the same time that God gave the judgment for their sin, He also gave the way of salvation, which is usually what God does. Just like with Noah and the ark. Right? God pronounced judgment upon the world because of the deep sinfulness of the people. God was going to bring judgment and flood the earth. But at the same time, He told Noah, start building the boat. The flood won't come until the boat's done. He was providing the way of salvation. Well, He did the same thing during the days of Moses. When the snakes came into the camp and began biting people, God also told Moses, take your staff that He used for many different things as you read through His life. Take and make a bronze snake and wrap it around that staff. We still see that today. We still see it on hospitals and ambulances and medical clinics because it's a symbol of healing. Well, that's exactly what it was used for. God told Moses, tell the people when they're bitten, they just need to come to where you are holding up the staff and they need to look upon that snake that is wrapped around that staff and when they look at it, that was it, just look at it, they'll be healed. What's involved in that? Well, first of all, they have to be aware, right? They have to know that 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 healing is available. Secondly, they need to believe that it will actually work, that if they go there and look at that staff, that just looking up at it, they need to believe that that will actually work. So there's an element of faith, which I believe is the biggest element. And then finally, they have to act upon that belief. They have to go to where the snake is and look at it, and then they're healed. And it worked. That was how God brought healing. How God brought salvation during that time of judgment. As we look at John, Jesus is pointing that out to Nicodemus. He says, look, just as the snake was lifted up In the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. See, this is the verse that everybody has memorized, but we don't often know what the connection is. What was Jesus using that verse, John 3.16, to teach about? He was using it to teach Nicodemus how to be born again. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, remember the serpent in the wilderness? Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up, And everybody who looked on Him, and we mentioned that that would take an element of faith. You had to believe that that would work, and then go do it, and you'd be healed. It's the same with Christ. Christ is lifted up. Where was He lifted up? On the cross. What does it mean to look upon Him on the cross? Well, it's not talking about looking on Him physically with our eyes. It's talking about believing in Him. Look at all the different places the word believe pops up in those few verses that we just read. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life in verse 15. In verse 16, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because, why? He has not believed in the one only Son of God. So this is all given in answer to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, what do you mean be born again? What do I do to be born again? Do I go back into my mother's womb? Jesus says, no, you don't go back into your mother's womb. I'm going to be lifted up for you, and you're going to believe in me, and you'll be born again. John chapter 1 also gives reference to that where it says, but all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born. There's that new birth again 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So when Peter starts out in this passage and he says, blessed be God, I just want to praise He's worshiping Him for God's saving work in His life. He's worshiping God for causing Him to be born again. As we look through this passage, it's pretty detailed about this saving work that God is doing in our life. Let's look first of all at the motivation. The first thing it lists is God's motivation. Why would God do this? What's His motivation? What's what's causing Him to want to save us? Why does He bother with giving us a new life? We're fallen creatures. We're sinful by nature. What does He want to do with us? Well, we find that the motivation for God to do this is found within Himself. As we look at the the verse here, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. The words mercy and grace show up a lot in the Bible. And I often think of them together because they just kind of naturally go together. One has a little bit more of a, a negative connotation. Not that the word is negative. The word's very positive. But it, it has to do with our negative connotation. Right? In other words, Mercy means that you're withholding something, something bad, some, some kind of punishment or judgment. That you're withholding something from somebody that they actually deserve. And grace is kind of the other side of that, is giving something to somebody that they don't deserve. And we get both of those in our salvation. The Bible teaches us because of our sinfulness, we deserve judgment. We deserve, like Adam and Eve did, to get kicked out of the garden. They, they bit the apple. We've all bitten the apple since then. We've all fallen into sins and temptations that we've, we've practiced in our life. We've all loved ourselves more than we love God. And so we deserve to be on the outs. We deserve judgment. We deserve an eternity in hell. But God in His mercy does not give us what we deserve. Now grace kind of picks it up where mercy leaves off. Because grace says, okay, what is there that we don't deserve? Well, we don't deserve a future in heaven. We don't deserve a right relationship with God. We don't deserve God's friendship or God's compassion. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. So mercy withholds God's judgment that we do deserve. Grace gives us eternal life, which we don't deserve. And that's exactly what God is pointing to in this passage. He's saying we have this born-again relationship with God. We have forgiveness of sins And what's God's motivation? What is it based on? It's completely based on the mercy of God. God just says, I just want to give this to you. I know you don't deserve it, but I want to give it to you anyway. And so He offers us salvation. He offers us a new birth, a new life. You know, this is emphasized in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, You have been saved. So it uses both of them there, both mercy and grace. And it says God did this great thing in our life. And according to His mercy and according to His grace, He gives us salvation. He takes us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and He makes us alive in Christ. That's the new birth. That's being born again. So God finds the motivation within Himself. Titus chapter 3 also says the same thing. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. That word regeneration, is uh, it means the same thing as new birth. It's not the same word, but it means the same thing. By the washing of regeneration and a renewal of the Holy Spirit. You can't earn your way to God. It's not by your works of righteousness 
righteousness. We can't do enough righteousness to get us to heaven. We can't do enough righteousness to satisfy the wrath of God against the sin in our lives. Because we've already blown it. I often think of it in legal aspect. You can stop at that stop sign out in front of the church a hundred times, but if you don't stop once, you deserve a ticket. Now, thankfully, there's not always a policeman there. Because I've missed that stop sign a few times. In fact, when I first moved here, I thought, who put that there? I keep, I keep forgetting that there's a stop sign there and I just kept driving through it. Just breaking the law once makes you guilty. No matter if you've kept that same law a thousand times, you're still guilty of breaking it that once. So no matter how many works of righteousness we try to do in our life, it still does not overcome the fact that we're guilty. What overcomes our guiltiness? Just God's mercy. God's saying, you know what? I know you don't deserve to be forgiven. I want to forgive you. In fact, He wanted to forgive us enough that He was willing to pay for it through the death and the resurrection of His own Son. Can you imagine what that was like for Him to watch His Son go through that agony on the cross? I can't imagine watching one of my kids go through that. That's an amazing, amazing mercy. So we see the motivation for God's saving work in our life is found within Himself. It's His own mercy. But what's the result? What is the result of this new life in Christ of being born again? And I'm not even changing the words to Peter's outline. He outlines it better than I could anyway. He says the first result of our being born again, of this new life, the saving work of God in our life, is a living hope. We're looking forward to the time when Christ comes back for us, when He makes everything right. Even in creation itself, as beautiful as it is, the Bible says it's under the curse of sin. it says all creation groans. And you know what? When you stop and think about it, it really is. We see big examples of it in earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and tidal waves and all those different kinds of things, hurricanes, volcanoes erupting. So we see big signs of it, but we see little signs too. You know what? There isn't any place in all of the creation of the world where you don't find death. Some things eating other things to keep themselves going. There's death everywhere in this creation. It didn't start out that way. We're very used to it because it's all we've ever known. But it didn't start out that way. But now we have a living hope. We're looking forward to a time when there isn't going to be any more death. There isn't going to be any more sorrow or crying. Someday there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth after Christ comes back and has a judgment, sets up His millennial kingdom, His thousand-year kingdom down here on this earth. And then at the end of that, there's going to be a final judgment and then the new heaven and the new earth. And there will be no more sickness. It's going to cut our prayer list way down. I'm going to be praying for people with, with bad backs and cancer and because those things won't be happening. There'll be no more sorrow or pain, no more death and dying. It's going to be awesome. That is our that is in our future if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. We're born again to a living hope. And one of the kids in release time asked me the other day, he says, Well, you know, when we get to heaven, who are we going to be? I said, Well, you. <laughs> you know? You know, and they're thinking, well, there's got to be some changes, and there will be. There's a term in the Bible, glorified, or glorification. That we go through a glorifying process. We will have our glorified bodies. But you know what? still going to be you. The life you're living here is important because it's your life. Your life is going to continue into eternal, into eternal life. In fact, you already have it if you're trusting in Christ. And we're going to be without the presence of sin. So that's going to be a big change. So there's definitely going to be some changes. But you know what? It's still, it's still you. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, some people brought an argument to him about the resurrection. Because the Sadducees, a group of people, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Pharisees, they did believe in the resurrection of the dead. So it's kind of an ongoing fight between them, argument between them. So they come to Jesus and they ask him a question, trying to trick him, trying to get a a response from him that will make people mad at him. But Jesus, at the very end, he corrects them. And he says, as for the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what it was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Those people are already dead when God makes this statement. 
they've died. But God says, I am the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And so Jesus says, here's your problem. You don't recognize God's the God of the living, not the dead. Those people are still alive. You know, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with His disciples, Peter, James, and John, two people came and met with Jesus. And you know who it was? It was Moses and Elijah. They've long since been dead from off the face of this earth, but they are still very much alive and talking to Jesus about His future plans and ministry and what He was carrying out there. They're still alive. We have a living hope. 1 Corinthians 15 says that's what this is all about. It says if, if, if we only have hope in this life, then Paul says we are in the wrong business because he's being hunted, he's being pursued. He used to have a life where he was powerful. Where he was powerful, where he was influential, where he had status. And now he's a hunted man. And the Apostle Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then I'm wasting my life. Later in chapter 15, he says this, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. You see, he's talking about our existence now. Our existence now... It's perishable. It is dishonor. It is in weakness. He said, and he's comparing, he's saying, your life now compared to your life after the resurrection is like weakness and strength, perishable and imperishable, dishonor and honor. We're going to have a greater life in the resurrection of the dead. Now, hopefully we don't even all have to wait for the resurrection. Maybe we'll, some of us are going to be here when Jesus comes back and we're just going to be raptured instead of resurrected. But the point is this. That our hope is a living hope. It is an eternal life. It is greater than anything that we see or experiencing here. Not even just an extension of it. But not only is it a living hope, but says He's uh, caused us to be born again to an inheritance. Man, can you think about that? You ever wonder what it would be like to be the dependent of uh, Bill Gates? What's it going to be like for those people to be left his fortune all of a sudden? That would be astounding. Well, this one says that we get our inheritance from God, from the Creator of the universe. Ephesians also talks about that inheritance. says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the Bible says that God has given us inheritance, that our inheritance is secure. Why? Because it's based on God's predestination of us. He's, he's, he's chosen to give it to us. So He can't even undo it. And then He says, I also gave you My Holy Spirit but as a guarantee of your inheritance. It's talking about is like earnest money. In fact, if you look at the old King James Version, that's what it says. It says that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. Well, what is earnest money? If you're going to buy a house and you make an offer on the house, they usually require you to put down earnest money. In other words, you put down a down payment that says, look, I'm serious about this offer. I definitely intend to go through with it. This offer is guaranteed. It's solid. If I don't go through with it, you get to keep the earnest money. That's how serious I am about this offer. Well, that's what the Bible says the Holy Spirit is to us when He comes into our life. He's just the earnest. He's just the, the, the down payment. And God says this is a guarantee of more to come. We have a great inheritance before God. Ephesians 1.18, and He says, Ever since I heard of your faith in Christ, I've been praying for you. 
And then he starts to give them a list of things that he's been praying for for them. And one of the things that he's been praying for is that having eyes, the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm praying for you that you will know what is that hope that we have. Know what is that inheritance that we have. Why? Well, it's because that helps us in our Christian life. When we recognize the great hope that we have in Christ and the awesome inheritance, then it helps us to overcome obstacles in our life and and it helps us to grow and be faithful to God. He also warns people, if you're living in your sin, then you're not one of the people that is inheriting the kingdom of God. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you by empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So he doesn't want anybody in the church to be deceived and to continue to live in their sin thinking that they have this glorious inheritance, but at the same time, he does want the people that actually that have the inheritance, that have trusted in God, that have been born again, he wants them to understand the great inheritance that they have. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, he says it's an inheritance that God has qualified us for. It's not something that we deserved. Nobody has this inheritance because they deserved it or because they're more righteous than anybody else. We only have this inheritance because God Himself qualifies us for it through that new birth. So we have a living hope. We have a great inheritance. This inheritance He defines with three different words. He says, first of all, it's imperishable. We live in a great place for understanding imperishable. Uh, Jesus told us one time, Do not lay up your treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. One of the things I've found living in Minnesota is uh, rust eats things. Vehicle or something that you have today that you're so proud of and is nice and shiny new and uh, enjoy it and enjoy it a lot because you got a certain amount of years and then it's going to start rusting out. And uh, actually it probably starts pretty soon but uh, you just don't see as much of it until it starts eating all the way through the fender walls and I'm getting it underneath the back of the cab of my pickup. Well, our inheritance, the Bible tells us, is imperishable. There is no rust. It's, it's not going to diminish. It's not going to deteriorate. It's not going to fade away. Not only is it imperishable, it says it's undefiled. In other words, it's not corrupted. It's not stained. It doesn't have the stain of sin upon it. The inheritance that we get from God is not going to have the stain of our sin upon it. It's just going to be awesome. Not only is it undefiled, it says it's unfading. In the uh, construction end of my trades, uh, we deal with this all the time. You're always installing products or trying to make products better all the time. That it's not going to fade. I think of things like siding. They try to make siding more and more durable, more and more different kinds of covering on it. You know, vinyl siding came out. Boy, this is maintenance-free. Yeah, it's maintenance-free, but you know what? doesn't mean it's not going to fade. Your, your color's still going to, it's going to fade over time. If you want a little tip on vinyl siding, go white. If you go white, at least it can't fade as much because vinyl starts out as white. It all fades. It all gets a little more dingy looking. I remember one time we were working on somebody's house and we put tongue and groove on on all these walls and, and, and ceilings. And it looked beautiful. And in the meantime, they had a little bit of furniture over there that had to be moved around out of our way. And at one point, the customer took this mattress and they leaned it against this wall on this big tongue and groove wall. And they just leaned it over there and stacked some furniture in front of it and said, Will this stuff be in your way if we just leave this here? I said, Nope, not in my way. Well, it was right by a big sliding glass door. And you know what? After a little while... 
Uh, we'd been working there, and that stuff had just been sitting right there. That area was already done, so it was not in our way, so it just got left there. We didn't move it. They didn't move it. And we continued to work and got most of the rest of the house done, and it's time to start moving things into the bedrooms. And they grab that mattress, and they take it into the bedroom. And on that wall, you can see where that mattress was leaning. I thought, man, nobody's even lived here yet. How soon things start fading, even in our day with all these finishes that we can put on them. No matter what you're talking about, I don't care if it's a new vehicle, a new house, the, the bloom's going off the rose. Every, everything fades. And you know what? We, we fade. We're going to get older and we're going to die. But the Bible tells us our inheritance is unfading. The last result that he lists in this passage is security. Is the security that we have for our inheritance. Is the security that we have in our new birth. It says in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So God says, you know who's guarding your inheritance? I am. The inheritance that we have in Christ when we put our faith and trust in Him, God is guarding it. God is watching it. So there's kind of two things interacting here. It says that it's kept by God, but it's kept through our faith. And so both of those things are, are involved. But, um, but God says He is guarding it, that we are secure in our relationship with Him. If, if you're trusting in Christ today, you're absolutely secure in your relationship with Him. But if you're trusting in Christ today, you, what you're seeing is the, the outworking of a plan that was put in, put in place before the foundation of the world that these things were already set. passage that we like to go to for comfort in troubling times is Romans 8.28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose. But then he also goes on from there and he says, how do we know that everything's going on? He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brethren, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who justified, he also glorified. Now, we don't have time to go through every one of those. But it starts out with back before the foundation of the world through with God's predestination. And it ends up with glorification. He glorified. And that's the only one that has not been experienced yet. Glorified is what happens to us when we go to be in the very presence of God in the last day. That's when we're glorified. But notice the process. It says that everybody that is involved in God's predestination ends up in the glorification. Everybody who is predestined is called. Everybody who is called is justified. That's the moment of salvation. And then everybody who is justified is glorified. You see, there's no place to get off that train. It starts in one place, it ends in the last place. In other words, we're completely secure. There is no way to lose your salvation. You didn't earn it to begin with. It was given to you. And there's no way to lose an inheritance that God gave you in His mercy is secure. And that is exactly why right at the end of this, verse 31, the next verse starts off and it says, What what then shall we say that to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. But we are regarded as sheep 
to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, he's saying we are absolutely secure in Christ. Then finally, let's look at the method of God's saving work. What is that method? We're born again to this living hope through, here's the method, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The other place born again was used in verse 23 of chapter 1 of First Peter there. It says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. So two things God uses to give us that new birth. One is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the other one is His Word, which communicates the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First Peter is just breaking out in worship and he's saying, man, praise God. Blessed be God. Why? Because of the save, God's saving work in his life. Because God had caused him to be born again. God's motivation is His own mercy. The result of that is us having a, a living hope and an inheritance to having security. And the method for that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ as proclaimed by God's people and through God's Word.